Well, in the opening verse of Philip Bliss's hymn, Man of Sorrows, he makes this uh, great claim and statement and profession and declaration uh, that the Son of God has been sent into this world to reclaim ruined sinners. And over the next few verses now, he's going to take that basic statement and begin to unpack it. Exactly how did God in Christ do that? What was actually involved in Christ reclaiming sinful men and women? And so he's going to delve into more detail now in his next verses of that hymn and explain exactly how it is that Christ accomplished that and what it was that he did. And so he has this uh, second verse speaking of Christ the one who is bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. So the first thing that uh, we're reminded of in that next verse of the hymn is that in Christ Jesus, as we see him enduring the cross and the hours subsequent to that, from that Uh, darkness of the garden uh, of Gethsemane onwards in the hours of darkness there as he suffered such mental anguish as he prayed with his heavenly father that if possible that cup that God had given him to drink if there was any other way that that might be uh, taken from him and accomplished that his father would find at this last hour find another way Yet, the Father's will be done. And from that, those hours onward through to his actual crucifixion, the the great suffering that Christ endured, bearing shame and scoffing. Now, the nature of Christ's death, from the words of Isaiah 53 that we began to consider last week, We see the the anguish and the suffering of Christ there, physical obviously, but also the the spiritual and emotional torment that Christ endured, but also shame and scoffing, the very public nature of Christ's death, a very public thing. That got me thinking during the week about that. Such a a public, disgraceful, shameful thing that Christ endured. I found my mind going back to Genesis chapter 22. That's the chapter where we're told that God gives Abraham an instruction to take his son Isaac up to a mountain and to offer up his own son Isaac as a sacrifice. And Abraham heeds God's word and remarkably sets out. And there's two remarkable things in that passage. First of all, we see that Abraham on the one hand is actually prepared to go to such a length in obedience to his God. Uh, Isaac is actually tied up 
and lying down on the mound of stones that he's built as an altar. And Abraham actually has the, the knife raised to plunge into his son before God actually stops him. Having seen the commitment of Abraham and the faith of Abraham and the obedience that Abraham has, and yet on their journey up to the mountain, as Isaac questions his father as to where is the animal that we're going to sacrifice, Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb. Just how much did Abraham understand in that sentence? I, I don't know for certain. Probably more than we think. God himself will provide the lamb. But the thing that struck me that was that on that occasion, that place of sacrifice was to be quiet, secluded, And if any form of sacrifice can be dignified, which probably can't be, it was quiet, secluded and dignified. Why couldn't Christ have been sacrificed like that? Why could it not have been in a secluded place? Why could it not have been hid from sinful eyes? Why could it not have been a place where Christ did not have to endure the shame and the humiliation that he did. Why could it not have been at the top of a mountain? Just Jesus and his father, like it was for Isaac and his father. But no, you see, Christ was crucified publicly as a criminal so that all could see and witness. Those two disciples on the road to Emmaus at the end of that weekend, you remember, talking to the man who they don't realise is Jesus at the time. Are you the only person in the whole of Jerusalem who does not know these things that we're talking about? Everyone knew now, without the media that's available to us in the 21st century, the death of Christ was about as public as it can get. It occurred at a time when the city of Jerusalem was heaving with visitors. They'd all come for the Passover feast. Visitors, not just from all across Israel, but from all around the Middle Eastern world, had gathered in Jerusalem that day. And they would all return home, telling of the things that they had seen and been witness to. As far as getting the message out 2,000 years ago, this is about as efficient as it was ever going to be. Everyone is going to know about this Jesus of Nazareth. The whole world, it seems, is going to be speaking of him. Christ was treated like a guilty criminal. The things that happened to him matching the things that had happened to those 
two vagabonds who'd been crucified with him, one on his left and one on his right-hand side. Everything that they had endured, Christ endured, and possibly more beside. You see, the nature of Christ's death, the nature of his death was very specific, as we'll see in a moment. And one of the key aspects of Christ's death is that his death must fit our crime against God. The death of Christ must fit our crime against God. Otherwise, the penalty has not been paid in full. On the day of Christ's return, God's wrath and judgment will fall openly upon everyone who's lived their life in rebellion against God. God's wrath and judgment will fall openly upon all who have not turned in repentance and faith and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be a day of unimaginable shame and anguish as all of their sins are revealed and made known and judged. If Christ is going to deal with the penalty of our sins, that is what he must endure for us. Everything that my sins deserve, every part of it, has to be borne by Christ. And his death and all the circumstances surrounding his death rather than being a mystery. Well, if it was just God and Christ on the top of a mountain somewhere, who'd have known what happened? But the death of Christ is one of the best attested and recorded facts of the ancient world. Countless witnesses saw and observed and heard the things that were done and said. All of Jerusalem was buzzing with what they'd just seen. And even at his moment of death, even as he was dying for lost sinners, lost sinners mocked him and put him to shame. It must be so. Because he's paying the price for my sin. And that's what my sin deserves. You see, when God sent his son to be the saviour, when God sent his son into the world to make a way back to God from the dark paths of sin, Jesus didn't opt for an easy option. There wasn't an easy option. That's in his humanity, that's what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, is there an easier way? Because he knew what was coming. But there wasn't an easier way. God didn't go light on Jesus just because he was his own son. He couldn't. The penalty has to be paid. And that cup of which Jesus spoke in the darkness in Gethsemane, Jesus drank every last drop of that cup for lost sinners. 
And as I mentioned last week, we, we get the most vivid insight as to just how grave a thing sin is in the eyes of a holy, righteous God. That Christ must endure so much in order that the wages of our sins are paid in full. In full. Nothing omitted, nothing missed out. Full. Bearing shame and scoffing. He must, because that's what I deserve, that's what you deserve in your sins before God. And it all fell on Christ. And it fell on him for you and for me. And that's the second point that we pick up from this verse in Bliss's hymn. Jesus is the substitute. In my place, condemned, he stood. He's the substitute. Now we focused last week on primarily on Isaiah chapter 53. And we saw how even there, the Old Testament prophet labours the point that it was because of our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. It's because of me that Jesus had to endure those things. By his stripes, we are healed. It's the language of substitution. It's unmistakable. It's clear. The Bible couldn't make it clearer that Jesus stands in the place of sinners. And of course, we're not at all surprised to discover that when we get to the New Testament, the apostles pick up exactly this same theme. Of course they do. One of the best known verses, I suppose, to help us understand this topic, we find in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 21. It speaks of God who made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. The sinless one standing in the place where the sinner should be. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. The substitute. And the the Apostle Paul mentions this frequently throughout all of his New Testament writings and virtually all of his letters make reference to these great truths. He's constantly reminding Christians and churches of the grounds in which they stand on which they stand before God and reminding them that it's all the work of Christ again and again and again he takes them back to these glorious truths when he writes to the galatians that well-known verse 20 of chapter 2 uh, paul giving a word of personal testimony in his writing i have been crucified with christ It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that your testimony this evening? That you know this Jesus who gave himself for you 
that you might be saved, that you might be secure. And then just a little bit later in in chapter 3 of Galatians, uh, Paul says this, Christ has redeemed us. And the word redeem has behind it the idea of paying a price to have something released. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Because you see, when we consider God in his righteousness and his holiness and the moral law of God by which he judges all things, all of us are guilty in his sight. And as Paul explains to the Romans, the wages of sin is death and we're cursed. We're we're all under condemnation. We're all under God's judgment, every single one of us. There's no one righteous, there's no one going to escape. We're all under God's judgment and it's like a curse upon us. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Christ has taken our curse upon himself. And God has treated him like he should treat me, like he should treat you. And the curse has fallen upon Christ as our substitute. These are wonderful things. Let me just read a few of the verses a bit more quickly. In Ephesians, when he writes to the Ephesian church, he says this towards the end of his letter in chapter 5. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. He's given himself for us. When he writes to Timothy to encourage him and to instruct him, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, Paul writes these things. Remember, Timothy, there is one God and mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You want to be reconciled to God, there's only one person you can go through, and that's Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. He gave himself a ransom, paying the price to release us and to free us from our sins. And then when we read just before from the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, we read these words at verse 28, so Christ was offered once. To bear the sins of many. He's the substitute. Can you repeat these words this evening? From your heart. In my place. Condemned. He stood. Do you know that? Final point. Pardon secured through his blood. Bliss writes, sealed my pardon with his blood. Pardon. Here's a man who's been convicted in court. The sentence is over him. And he's pardoned. What does that mean? It means the crime 
for which he had been found guilty. That accusation and that charge has actually been now removed. That accusation and that declaration in law that he's guilty has been taken away. And he's a free man. She's a free woman. They're no longer guilty as charged. All the accusation, all the sentence, all the penalty has been removed from them. Now, in the Old Testament, um, where you read about all the, the laws there about sacrifice, primarily, of course, in the book of Leviticus, but you find it in many other places as well, those uh, Old Testament Levitical laws of sacrifice, they were a constant reminder to the people of Israel that there can be no forgiveness for sins without the shedding of blood. Those sacrifices were going on day in, day out. To our 21st century ears, it sounds pretty barbaric. And it was very horrific. But the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And the Bible isn't messing when it says that. And in the Old Testament, in those days, the sights, the sounds... The smells of sacrifice would hammer home to people again and again the gravity of sin, the holiness of God, and what is necessary to appease the wrath of a holy God. Priests would end the day blood-soaked. And it's through the blood of Christ that we have the assurance that our sins have been dealt with in full. In full. Now again, let me just read a few scriptures that just confirm this for us. And again, the apostles want us to be under no doubt that it's the blood of Christ that has cleansed us from all our sins. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Take, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. He shed his blood to purchase the church. What a price. What a cost to the Lord Jesus Christ. His blood was the payment. Nothing less would do. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, the apostle writes, much more then, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. To be justified is for God to declare that we are no longer under his condemnation, that our sins have been dealt with, that we are forgiven, that we have been pardoned by his blood. Without the shedding of Christ's blood, we would not have that promise. We would not have that hope. We would not have that certainty. 
And of course, the verse before Romans 5, 8 is loved and well known that God is demonstrating his own love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. What love? Do you know this love of God that he's shown you in Christ? That he would shed his own blood for you, that you might be cleansed and forgiven all of your sins. And again, just listen to how the apostle constantly makes this a theme when he writes to Christian people just to remind them of these great truths in which they stand. In the opening chapter to the Ephesians, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. It's a gift. No payment is required by you because all the payment has been paid by him. And he paid it with his blood. In Colossians, in the opening chapter there, here Paul speaks again, verse 20 of chapter 1, by Christ to reconcile all things to himself, by him. This is God, the Father, reconciling us to himself, making us right again with himself we can't make ourselves right with God God makes us right with himself having made peace through the blood of his cross we were enemies of God we were against God we fought him tooth and nail but not anymore we're at peace why because Christ has shed his blood Uh, Peter says the same thing When Peter's writing, it's not just the Apostle Paul. And Peter picks up on this in the opening chapter of his first epistle. We notice how often, right at the beginning of their letters, they remind Christians about these important things. Verses 18 and 19. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. No. What were you you redeemed with? The precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In our morning series in 1 John, we read this in the opening chapter of 1 John. That if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And the writer to the Hebrews from chapter 9 that we read, he reminds us there of how the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that was seen in the Old Testament sacrifices. In that, old, in that sacrificial system where again and again and again the priests would enter into the, temple court, into the tabernacle courtyard initially of course and then the temple courtyard in Jerusalem and over and over and over again sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice Gallons and gallons and gallons of blood spilt and shed for the forgiveness of sins. But all pointing to the one who would come. And now, in one man, in one death, in one sacrifice, that whole system would be perfectly completed and fulfilled. And no more sacrifices required anymore. Because of him. That one final sacrifice. 
On account of what Jesus has done for you, there's forgiveness. And there is cleansing of your sins. When you come to Christ as your substitute saviour, and acknowledge him as that, when you come to him confessing your sins, recognising that it was your sins that held him there until it was accomplished, as you turn in repentance from your sins to the cross of Christ and to the Christ of the cross, as you trust him and take hold of him by faith, so God declares you to be clean and righteous and forgiven. The most royal of royal pardons that has ever been declared. You in Christ go free. God's wrath and anger has been taken away because it's all fallen on another and it will never now fall on you. Never. Pardons are often given because it's been decided that sometime in the past there was some sort of miscarriage of justice. Pardons are often uh, delivered posthumously after the person has died. There's been a number of cases in recent years when that's been the case. There's been no miscarriage of justice here. This is precisely why the father sent his son. And this is precisely what God intended to do to him. We receive our pardon. Not because we never deserved God's condemnation in the first place and that somehow God got it wrong. We receive our pardon from God because bearing shame and scoffing rude. In your place, condemned he stood, sealed your pardon with his blood. And will not your heart shout out this evening, Hallelujah, what a saviour. We'll stand and sing a hymn to close. <clears throat>